setting fire to the stoner stereotype, sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Welcome to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Professor of Psychology and Director of Clinical Training at the University at Albany. As many of you know, I'm author of Understanding Marijuana, Chair of the Board of Directors at the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and High Times columnist. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I'm thrilled to say we've got Lauren Paget joining us. She's Development Officer at Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Lauren earned a degree in psychology at Northeastern University, but I promise this won't digress into psychological nerdiness. She's a stellar advocate and dynamic speaker. You'll be stunned to learn she also has unique insights into the world of medical cannabis. Thanks for joining us, Lauren Paget. Oh, thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me. It's really awesome to be here. So first and foremost, tell us about Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Well, sure. I'd be happy to. So uh, SSDP is a chapter-based drug policy reform organization. We have thousands of students at about 240 chapters all across the United States, and our chapter leaders are trained by our outreach staff, and they uh, learn the skills they need to affect policy change um, out on campus, in the community, uh, at the state level, and uh, every year we get together for a federal lobby day. Boy, the group really warms my heart. I feel like you're catching folks when they're at the prime of life and ready to lay down a whole sort of uh, set of habits for being engaged in the whole uh, legislative process. It's really great. Where are they on the web? How can folks get in touch? Uh, SSDP.org is our website. That's pretty intuitive. Do Do you have any favorite campaigns going on right now? Uh, So right now we are gearing up for our 2016 campus campaign. Uh, We first introduced this in 2014 ahead of the uh, uh, marijuana-related ballot initiatives in Washington, D.C. and uh, Florida for medical marijuana. And uh, we had really great success with that program last year. We managed to build up campuses. We, We had great success with this program last year. We managed to build up our presence on campuses where chapters were smaller, or start chapters at schools that didn't have it. And we really got the students involved with the campaigns to register voters, get the word out about the ballot initiatives, share information with voters, and get people to the polls on election day. And we managed to really expand our reach in those areas. And in Washington, D.C., the initiative passed, of course. And in Florida, we were so close. Uh, Florida needed a 60% supermajority to pass medical marijuana, and we fell just shy of that with 58%. But we managed to build up our chapter network so much that it was really worth it for us. So All we're right. going to do that again. In Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really big success, and we're planning to replicate it again in 2016 in California for sure, and we are uh, looking to add a, a coordinator for Arizona and Nevada and Massachusetts and we hope to tackle Florida again. Ooh, so I got to admit, a lot of my undergrads would relish the thought of being able to work for SSDP. Is there anything in particular you'd recommend for how to end up with a job like yours? 
Well, for any college student out there, the first thing I would recommend would be, of course, to start an SSDP chapter. And I'm looking at our master chapter list, and we have a chapter at uh, the university at Albany. So uh, any of your students in class should definitely get in touch with the chapter. But anyone out there who's listening, start an SSDP chapter. You will learn the skills that you need to learn through our outreach staff who will teach you what you need to know and work you through any specific challenges that you encounter in your activism. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to end when you graduate. It's tr drug policy jobs can be kind of scarce. Uh, so to get the experience that would be really useful to get hired by a drug policy reform organization, I would recommend working for any nonprofit that is close to any other issue that you care about. I started working in mental health advocacy here in Washington, D.C. before coming into the drug policy reform movement but I already had a lot of practical experience with event planning and liaising with membership, working as an executive assistant. You know, nonprofit boot camp is what that job was for me, and it really has translated well into drug policy reform. That's great. I do give a talk uh, 420 week for our SSDP crew every year, and I think it, it's good to throw in that you're going to meet like-minded folks who really are passionate and interesting, and it's just great to feel like you're not the only one out there. Absolutely. And then I got to jump to this great talk you gave at the normal legislative fly, and you really opened my eyes on a lot of things, including uh, some interesting data about gender and how people interrupt each other. Would you be willing to give us a rehash of that? Sure, sure. I'd love to. So there's a lot of research out there about interruption in conversation patterns uh, because it's something that is easy to quantify and count how many times an interruption happens. Sometimes with psychological research, uh, things that you're trying to study have, are hard to be measured in a numerical way. So that's why there's so much research out there about this. But uh, an earlier study in 1975, uh, these two sociologists from UCSB uh, started, did their study by uh, lawyering in public spaces with a tape recorder and recording two-person conversations and counting how many interruptions there were. And they found that uh, most often men uh, interrupted people more often than women did. Uh, further studies after that have also found that um, actually it, it doesn't matter so much who's, you know, who's talking when interruptions happen, but rather who they're talking to. And women, women interrupt other women just as often as men interrupt women. Uh, and anecdotally, since learning about, like, since seeing that research, I've, you know, seen that more in my life. I've caught myself interrupting other women and, and, you know, you really sort of catch yourself doing that and say, like, wow, that really is a thing. So uh, it's something that I'm definitely trying to unlearn. <laughs> oh, I got to admit, it had a huge impact on me. I caught myself interrupting my daughters when I got home and I'm really trying to be more conscious. I kind of wanted to segue this into just sort of gender differences in drug reform and your perceptions of how men and women uh, flourish in basically the legislative process. Sure. Well, um, just on the nonprofit side, like, what I can speak to personally is that working at SSDP is really awesome for me as a woman because women are in all of the top leadership positions, both our executive director and our deputy director and our chair and vice chair of the board of directors are all women. So it's a, it's a really empowering job to have. And I think that the, uh, the, advocacy side of the marijuana movement is, um, you know, also, you know, we're social justice oriented. So we, we really take it upon ourselves to, you know, not further the oppression that the drug war is, uh, is responsible for so much of. Um, 
but I guess in terms of uh, if you wanted me to speak a little bit more about the um, I'm sorry, uh, Mitch, were you asking about uh, legislators? Well, more, more than anything, just the sense that uh, men and women have a very different experience when they're working in drug law reform. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, um, you know, my experience has been a really positive and inclusive one in my, you know, two years in the movement. Um, you know, a lot of light has been shown uh, that there is uh, some sexism uh, that seems to happen on the industry side of things, which I haven't experienced personally, but I've read a lot about. But I think that, uh, you know, that sort of sexism is, you know, all across the business sector and, you know, the marijuana industry does have, you know, this obligation to build a better industry based on like, you know, what we're like, why we are creating an industry that's a substitution for an illegal market. So we really, uh, um, can I, Mitch, can I start over with that question? Absolutely. Kind of absolutely. One. I think that'd be best. Um, uh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, that would be, that would be good. Hey, and I know that's it's kind of amorphous, one. but just tell me, you know, tell me about men and women experience. You've, you've totally got this and, and it sounds delightful. You're doing great. <laughs> So can you tell me a little more about just how the experience of men, the experience of women and drug reform might be different? Well, from what I've experienced personally, uh, the advocacy side of the drug policy reform movement is really social justice oriented. So my experience of it is that everyone has been really respectful and inclusive. You know, it it is definitely nothing compared to uh, sexism and harassment that I encountered working in the restaurant and bar industry. So Maybe my threshold for that is a little different from everybody else. Ah, 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 very telling. <laughs> um, you know, and there has been like a lot of uh, talk among the industry and movement around uh, sexism uh, in the marijuana industry, in some of the marketing, uh, you know, maybe some isolated, you know, things that have happened in person, which I haven't experienced personally, but I have read up on it. And um, it really seems that that sort of behavior is just, you know, it, it's persistent across the business sector. So those of us who work at nonprofits are a little bit unaccustomed to that. But that said, uh, you know, as advocates for, you know, eliminating the illegal market for mar- marijuana and uh, regulating it in a way that's responsible, we also have a responsibility to create a new and better industry. And uh, that is just yet another way other than, you know, regulating and compliance and ID checks that we need to hold ourselves accountable. I love the idea of having the cannabis industry be above other industries as far as sexism is concerned. Hey, we're going to have to take a break and hear from our sponsors, but we'll be right back with Lauren Paget from Students for Sensible Drug Policy. We're going to hear a little more about her recent trip to a harm reduction conference and get her take on the wild laws in uh, the District of Columbia. Thanks for joining us on Burning Issues, and we'll be right back. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Paywin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com. 
growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the hosts of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing Cannabis Radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, we're back. It's Dr. Mitch Earlywine on burning issues, and we're talking to Lauren Paget from Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Lauren, I know you just got back from a harm reduction conference. Can you give us a lowdown on any take-home messages you got? Uh, I would love to. The conference was a super interesting experience because it is a drug policy reform conference, but it's so different from, uh, say, an SSDP conference or Drug Policy Alliance conference. Uh, I was really surprised to barely hear marijuana mentioned at all. Um, many of the people who came to the harm reduction conference were direct service workers who worked to make uh, uh, IV drug use safer through uh, syringe exchange programs, people who advocate for access to naloxone, which is a drug that can stop an overdose long enough for medical help to, arri to arrive. So it was very different from what we're used to in our advocacy when we so often talk about ending marijuana prohibition because it's something that we've been working on for so long and the opportunities to change marijuana laws at the ballot box is such a present thing for everyone in drug policy right now. But I also never heard psychedelics or MDMA harm reduction mentioned either. And it was a short conference and I didn't make it to every session, but to see a very different side of reform than what I'm used to was extremely enlightening. And so many of the laws uh, in the southern states in particular, it, you know, it really does sort of drive home. It, it's hard not to feel as though these policies that make, that make naloxone illegal in some states, that make syringe exchanges illegal in so many states, it really does send this message that in those, you know, our society seems to believe that only certain drug users deserve to get help and treatment. So it's really inspiring to see the people who are working on these policy changes, even though it's, even though it's for a drug that is very different from marijuana and doesn't have as much public support from a polling standpoint, but, uh, you know, desperately needs as much reform as, you know, it needs as much attention as we're giving to marijuana. Oh, I love that point. That's superb. And it's wild because I think, uh, the taboo, particularly around the opiates or any injectable drug, is just so strong. And these are our brothers and sisters who uh, are wrapped up in the things that they're doing much the way uh, we appreciate cannabis. And so I feel like we got to definitely extend them those same courtesies. 
When I think about harm reduction conferences, I, I often get caught up in this weird wording issue about is it harm reduction or is it drug safety? Do you have any feelings about that? Interesting. Well, while I think that drug safety does, I guess, accurately describe what harm reduction is, it's the idea that people are going to use drugs and we should meet them where they are and make drug use safer, and any positive change is a good one. But, uh, you, you know, from I guess from a messaging standpoint, harm reduction also describes what these set of ideas do also, but it also sort of makes the person that you're telling about harm reduction ask, hey, what is that? And you can sort of explain it in those terms. Meet people where they are. Any positive change is a good one. We've got to make this safer for everybody because drug use is something that's going to happen. Criminalizing it doesn't work. And so you can explain it in that way instead of, you know, like I said, it's, you know, the public support for marijuana is at such a high point right now, but it's really different for other drugs. So describing it in that way is sort of a, a good way to start that conversation. That's a great way for all of us to kind of stretch the envelope on our ideas about drug use, too. You live in D.C., and it's kind of an odd place for cannabis laws and medical laws. Would you care to let me know about the experience? I sure would. Gosh, I hope we have enough time for that. <laughs> um, I'll give you the quick version. So what this all boils down to is that Washington, D.C. isn't a state. Um, we're a federal district, and uh, so our laws are, are drafted and passed by the district council. However, Congress has the authority to block a law from being implemented. And until we voted to legalize uh, marijuana through Initiative 71 last fall, it really, D.C. statehood and congressional oversight sort of wasn't an issue that was in the national news, and I've really got to give it up to Initiative 71 for really pushing this discussion about D.C. statehood in the way nothing Woo-hoo, else. Really. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Washington, D.C. is my hometown, so I've been following this really closely. So the situation right now is that um, the district council uh, passed their own tax and regulate bill. However, that was blocked by Congress in the rider that was attached to the omnibus bill back in December, uh, authored by uh, Congressman Andy Harris from Maryland. So we were blocked from using any funds to enact legalization of marijuana. Uh, and uh, the reading of that by uh, Mayor Bowser and the district council was that Initiative 71 was self-enacting when the voters voted yes on Election Day. So at this point, uh, we are under the laws that were in Initiative 71, so it's legal to possess up to two ounces of marijuana, and uh, you can grow up to six plants in your home. You may gift up to an ounce to someone, but you cannot exchange money. So it's, it's, it's everything but a retail store, uh, essentially. And we also have a medical marijuana program with a physician-controlled conditions list, mean, meaning that doctors can recommend for any condition as long as they see fit. And... Uh, so separate from adult use marijuana, we also have a medical program here in D.C. And, um, and at the beginning of the program, there were only four conditions that, were allowed, that doctors were allowed to recommend for. And last summer, the conditions list was done away with. So doctors can recommend for any condition that they see fit. And uh, so there have been a lot of new patients coming into the program all at the same time, but the challenge has been with supply. So, you know, while we have... While we have this semi-legalization for adult use, and we still have this really awesome medical program, which has a great policy, but the supply issue has been a challenge for patients here in D.C., but hopefully with time that will resolve itself. And the D.C. Council has been 
really supportive on medical marijuana in particular, and um, we just really look forward to collaborating with them to further reform. Oh, that's a that's an intriguing crew, and I know it's been quite the uphill battle. Uh, I don't want to out anybody near and dear to you, but do you know any medical cannabis users there who have an experience that could be worth discussing? Great. So I actually, I know several people here in D.C. who are part of the medical program. And other than the supply challenges, which everyone seems to understand why it's happening, the, the experience has been a really positive one. It feels really good to be able to go into a store and be able to get your medicine. You know how much you're getting. You know what's in it. You know that the people who are working there are... Um, you know, very close to the cultivators, if not uh, at one of the dispensaries who are doing cultivation themselves. So they really know what's in it. They know how to help you. And this isn't, you know, you having to call up your friend of a friend and being in some kind of situation that could be potentially unsafe. Any sort of regulation is better than unregulation is really the takeaway here. And just the fact that so many people are in the program here in D.C., even though the supply challenge has been an issue, it just speaks to how much Washington, D.C. really wants these policy changes. It's always been a really marijuana-positive city. Uh, I've sort of seen that growing up here all these years, and it's really exciting to see a real industry coming to the East Coast and starting right in my hometown. Oh, it's definitely superb. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you have any sense for where you'd see marijuana policy moving in the next few years? In just Washington, D.C.? That'd be a great start, and love to hear you predict federally and worldwide if you'd like. (laughs) I'll do my best. Well, here in D.C., it seems that things are at a little bit of a standstill with with, uh, regulating for adult use. Uh, A lot of advocates really do seem to understand that solving the shortage in the medical program is a really excellent first step. Because when you look at places like Colorado, they didn't go from zero to recreational overnight. It was, you know, a years-long process. We began regulating medical marijuana, and you build that infrastructure and industry for a few years, and then, then tax and regulate. So uh, it's, we've just got to be patient. And in perspective, we really have some of the best drug laws on the East Coast here in D.C. Uh, uh, so I think that by working with the D.C. Council, we'll be able to solve the shortage probably in a, uh, maybe a year or two. That's kind of my ballpark guess. But in terms of D.C. moving forward with a real tax and regulate law on the books, it's hard to tell how many years it's going to be because we have this issue of Congress having the authority to block our laws. But maybe we'll see some sort of – it really might all come down to the 2016 election and sort of what the makeup of Congress looks like and what the leadership from the executive branch is going to look like. Um, Congress could make D.C. a state if they wanted to. They could um, they, they could end this – this this ban on us using funds to enact uh, tax and regulate of marijuana. So we really are going to have to wait and see and keep advocating. But we haven't slowed down. There's a really wonderful community building up around uh, Women Grow in D.C. especially, and we continue to have awesome SSDP chapters here, plus the, plus the uh, national offices of, um, you know, DPA, ASA, MPP. So we've got a really good group here, and I mean, if any if anyone can do it, we can. <laughs> I, I have to agree. It's it's really quite the concentration of of activists. I know DC is your hometown and near and dear to your heart, but do you, do you have any thoughts about as things spread out state to state or or even federally? So 2016 is probably the most ambitious year yet for marijuana reform, with so many uh, regulation ballot initiatives that are going to be 
going to be getting voted on. Um, so I guess, you know, it's, it's hard not to get excited about California. That is the most exciting one to watch. Uh, but it's early days still. So as the different uh, initiatives, uh, you know, work together and figure out like which law is going to be the one that's voted on, that's been very interesting to watch so far. And then um, Massachusetts is another state that's near and dear to my heart. And it's been sort of uh, frustrating to see that their medical program, you know, isn't quite on its feet yet. But you know, we will see what happens when they vote on adult use in 2016. Uh, I would love to see a, I would love to see legalization in Massachusetts after living there for many years and seeing that it's uh, like DC, a very marijuana positive place. I gotta admit, I'd love to see any state turn to a tax and regulate law that that could be helpful. Well, I'm afraid we have to wrap it up, but it's just been superb having you on the show. This is Dr. Mitch Earlywine with Lauren Paget of. Students for Sensible Drug Policy, thanks for joining us on Burning Issues. We'll be right back with a a few words about motivation. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or 8 years old. You can still learn something that's going to make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. We've got our next chapter of Self-Compassion and the Art of Activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. A few words about motivation today. This is a touchy topic because of the dreaded amotivational syndrome. 
For over 100 years now, people have feared that the cannabis plant is somehow going to turn motivated taxpayers into lazy slugs. The idea really upsets me. Research doesn't support it, and I usually end up hearing it when some misinformed journalist is discussing it. It's often right when I've hopped off the exercise bike to go give a lecture before writing a paper and getting dinner ready for my kids as I record a radio show. So you can imagine my frustration. Of course, my friends in economics have shown cannabis users often have more education and earn more money than their non-using peers. How this a motivation stereotype get started? A psychiatrist back in 1968 met a couple of 20-somethings. One wasn't sure about a girlfriend, and the other guy was tired of the phony struggle for grades in med school. If that sounds like dozens of 20-somethings you've met, join the club. But these two happened to smoke cannabis. The psychiatrist fashioned the term A-motivational syndrome, and it was off to the prohibitionist races. Now, every time someone meets a cannabis user who doesn't work 24-7, they think they have evidence of the syndrome. Note how they forget every cannabis user they've ever met who gets a lot done. And I'm talking U.S. presidents and award-winning scientists here. They also forget all the people who don't use cannabis who lack motivation, too. One of my favorite articles showed that about 5% of everybody was struggling with motivation, whether they used cannabis or not. But enough about this imaginary syndrome. Let's talk about real motivation for a minute. A couple of key ideas can help us all, even at our least motivated times. These are motivation is a state and action precedes motivation. First, motivation is a state. By that, I mean it's not a trait. It's not some trait that people carry around with them, some magical characteristic that some people have and some don't. It's not that there are motivated people and unmotivated or amotivated people. It's just that some people know how to get in the state more often than others. Motivation is going to ebb and flow. That's just part of being a human being. But with that in mind, what helps people get into a motivated state? Well, all the stuff we never want to hear helps. Exercise, eating right, meditation, blah. Who wants to talk about those? Actually, we'll talk about them in this segment on other weeks. But the other key to getting in a motivated state involves Remembering the reasons. Why did I want to do this? Sometimes generating the reasons and elaborating on them really helps. For some tasks, the pressing reason is usually just to get it over, my taxes, cleaning the house, writing an exam. But plenty of bigger tasks are really part of our values. Why do I want to write a congressional representative? Oh yeah, I want to live in a world where laws are fair. Getting in touch with the big reasons can help us snack, snap right into action. As corny as it sounds, the reasons can be particularly motivated when we lay them down on paper. It's especially good if we set little goals along the way. We don't have to show these goals to people, but when the reasons are sitting there in black and white, they tend to get us a little more fired up. When we lay out the little goals along the path, we can reward ourselves on the way. We've talked about rewards before, and I don't know what it is about Americans. They think they're not supposed to get rewarded for things, but they really help these tasks to go better. So a big goal like cannabis legalization sounds kind of foreboding, but a smaller one along the way, especially if I reward myself, that's going to keep things going.
legalize cannabis might be the big goal. Write a letter to my congressman and I get a cup of coffee might be a nice little goal along the way. You get the idea. Uh, in addition to thinking that motivation is a state, it can help to remember that action usually precedes the motivation. Lots of tasks look huge enough to crush my motivation, but if I can just get started, the motivation will kick in. Of course, starting that letter to the congressman is a great example, but exercise is one of my favorites here. Believe me, when I'm lying in bed in the morning and I have no intention of doing much more than rolling over, it's good to remember, if I can just get into the workout clothes, I'm on my way. Then, once I've got the uniform on, it seems silly to take it off and hop in the shower, so I might as well get on the bike. If we take small steps, even when we don't feel motivated, the motivation will kick in. Half the time, I'm on the exercise bike before I'm even fully awake. So break the big tasks down into little ones. Do the first one, even if you don't feel motivated, and then it'll happen. Just give it a chance. So motivation is a state, and action often precedes motivation. Let's keep those in mind, and we can go change the world. Hey, thanks for listening to Burning Issues. My hearty thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest Lauren Paget of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Please join us again next week. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine at CanvasRadio.com. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.